0: we're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation
1: science logic reason do you have any hard data
2: now that's what i call science You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by EDGE Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Go to edgeradio.org.au for more information about all of the good things they're doing for our local community. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host, Mibu Fisher, and today we're going to be talking about cultural connections, and I'd like to hand over to Mibu to begin the episode with an acknowledgement of country.
0: I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we are all gathering today, the Palawa people. Today we are meeting across Lutruwita, Tasmania, Aboriginal land, sea and waterways online. On behalf of everyone, I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, as well as the Tasmanian Aboriginal community who continue to care for country. I recognise a history of truth which acknowledges the impacts of invasion and colonisation upon Aboriginal people resulting in the forcible removal from their lands. I stand for a future that profoundly respects and acknowledges Aboriginal perspectives, culture, language and history and a continued effort to fight for Aboriginal justice and rights, paving the way for a strong future. So our guest today is Dr Emily from Swinburne University. Her research focuses on Indigenous affairs, land and sea management, policy and the regulation changes that benefit Indigenous communities. She is a proud Travolway woman from Tebracuna country in the northeast of Tasmania. You started out as an archaeologist and one of the first in the country.
1: Yes, I did. <laughs> this is just amazing. I, uh, um, I have to confess that as an archaeologist, the, the call and the love for it came from when I was a very young person watching Indiana Jones. I wanted that whip, I wanted that hat <laughs> <laughs> I wanted the adventure and then of course, you come to university and you realize that Indiana Jones was nothing but a dirty little heritage thief, and you know it's a terrible thing, and you come to realize that that the the hero job. That you you look for don't actually exist. But I did become an archaeologist nonetheless. <laughs> cool.
0: And you've also been a ranger and a manager at Uluru, Katajuda National Park. And so, like, I would say that working in Indigenous affairs has always been part of your life. And then after oh, that, absolutely. you ended up back in
1: Tassie? Absolutely. Uh, of course, archaeology wasn't um, in particular... Uh, Australian archaeology was never a course taught in Tasmania, so I had to leave home country in the winter. to ANU, and there was a whole big mob of us um, at ANU. There the was a lovely thing. The Australian National University meant that um, there was uh, indigenous peoples from all over Australia. So I was lucky enough to have this fantastic, not only education, That this cultural learning be be able to see my sense of indigenous identity and how that fits in with us as a as a national group of people. And so the the learning journey, archaeology is very much the learning journey of how us as indigenous peoples share. Social justice and rights messages over the decades. And so we are bathed in this advocacy of our elders and our past generations who have cleared the floor for us to even be at university. That's lovely.
0: Um, And then you completed your PhD in Indigenous. Joint management of protected areas, and with that, you've played an architectural role in making space for Indigenous people, particularly in the commercial fishing space. So your whole journey sounds really interesting um, to to where you've ended up now in your current role, and you've I think you've kind of touched on that. But like, what are your driving forces that led you to science, and then particularly fisheries?
1: Mm, I uh, land management has. Um that held my heart for a very long time, obviously archaeology and being able to work my round away most of Australia to have the experience as a park manager, um, at Uluru was, was exceptional. Um, to be able to see how planning and society and, uh, heritage and community and tourism uh, come into play how much the government has a greater say in an Indigenous life to other Australian lives. And one of the things that has travelled with me through the past few decades is this thing of science. And I've always... Uh, archaeology was never considered a science. It was a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, land management is not generally considered a science. It's, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And everywhere I've gone, this definition of science has never really applied to me, my knowledge, or the community of knowledge that I come from, whether that be my own in country or whether that be learned knowledges from Uh, Anangu in in the desert Um, and so this turn towards fisheries for me has been almost um, pathway creation, this absolute hard-fought pathway creation that what people think of science is not necessarily uh, how it plays out on the ground we know that fisheries are so defined by the science of stock assessments or um, sea level rises. And, and there doesn't appear at the first glance to be much room for indigenous knowledges and a holistic view that takes not only science but uh, the humanity into our cultural perspectives of managing country, of caring for country in partnership with our elders and ancestors. And so for me, fisheries really was is this exciting opportunity to start just to crack open. What is this definition of science? What does it actually mean in and of itself? in relation to the impact that it has on our lives. And so this, this wanting to, as a sea country person, and in particular as a female with specific governance rights the sea country, um, I want more from fisheries than just telling me whether the fish are there or not. I want impact for our communities to come out of that science knowledge.
0: Totally agree with that.
2: Yeah, I think that's really inspiring And in talking about the relatively narrow view and definition of science that has been upheld that marginalises many communities but probably none as severely as Indigenous communities and making science something that's actually socially useful for people is so important you're listening to that's what i call science stay with us where we'll be talking more to dr emily about her essential role challenging western science and structures to support indigenous cultural fisheries
0: You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about cultural connections to our marine environment. My name is Mibu Fisher, and I am joined by Dr. Neve Chapman, along with our guest, Dr. Emma Lee from Swinburne University. So, Emma, um, I just would like to ask a really probably simple question to you, but um, one that our listeners probably need to hear about a bit more. Um, what exactly are cultural fisheries, and can you provide some examples?
1: Cultural fisheries, for me, uh, in trying to find the definition, because fisheries' definitions do not incorporate Indigenous ways of connecting with sea country or how we extract our wild catch resources. And so, for me, cultural fisheries is not only about reminding people that... um, coastal island First Nations people of Tasmania have been fishing our shores for 40,000 years. But that this is an important concept about breaking down barriers of what is the science of commercial fisheries what is the science of cultural fisheries. Now, for me, cultural fisheries is about historic transactions occurring in new contemporary environments. Now, Karl Marx once wrote that Indigenous peoples could not be subject to the powers of separation of capital from the labour because every transaction is enfolded with reciprocity, we don't have transactions that separate the product from the communal belonging to it. And so, for me, cultural fisheries is about saying, our people cared for country. We fed our family, our women were in charge of diving for resources, our women cared for sea country to make sure all of those parts are balanced from the kelp to the shellfish to the understanding of how fresh waters play out in terms of running down into um, sea country.
2: When we talk about why it's important to acknowledge indigenous knowledge systems because they're so ancient but still relevant like what methods do you actually use to do that how do you incorporate that into a way that is recognized but is culturally sensitive and
1: respectful yes yes i mean you know there's there's so many combinations and permutations of this uh i can't imagine an indigenous person today hasn't run up against this brick wall or of Western scientists at the highest or lowest level saying your knowledge does not constitute for it. And so it is a very lonely, lonely road to walk.
0: Uh,
1: sometimes, sometimes when you're up against it, you have to just walk away and just say, not the right person, not the right time, and look at someone else. Sometimes you have to go at a China shop <laughs> and be not frightened of of making yourself heard, elbowing your way into the room. That's not to say we go in there shouting and demanding. That's just to point out some clear basic facts that when indigenous peoples are not in that room that policy or legislation making decision wrong. It's not because we're stupid. It's not because we're disinterested. It's because that there are structural colonisation, things at play that have been set up to harm Indigenous peoples and exclude us from sharing the joy and wonder of our culture. And sometimes we have to just make those statements and leave the room. And then there's other times, you know, where we have to just trust wholeheartedly that when we make these statements that we have something here to add, that we are problem solvers, and that together our knowledge creates the social side of fisheries. Sometimes then, if we see that little opening, we have to just embrace it for all that we are worth. And so for me, I call this methodology love bombing, cultural love bombing. (laughs) And And it brings people along. Yeah. Because all of a sudden when we're able to say, tell me what you know, how can I help you and your job? How does your knowledge then create that human rights, and how how it's teaching other people, and scientists in particular, that human rights isn't this protest activism, you know, conscientiously taking on something, so, you know, to to get involved in expanding out mutual dialogue. And being a rights warrior, all you have to do is listen. Actually create that space. Listen. Hold off. Thinking about, aha, you're wrong because I've been told about this. And instead of thinking, why have I been told something so different from what this Indigenous person is telling me? right in front of me. And just asking those people just for one moment. Put away your knee-jerk reactions. And come out on country and hear our elders, meet our elders. Find that sense of kinship and belonging with us so that when we speak, we have a a shared language of what science is and that impact that it has for all Australians. And then out of that, you find that there's this, what I call the fear and the fumble, and the fatigue of that entry point into relationships with Indigenous peoples. And all of a sudden, that barrier, that hurdle is removed because we're in a room respecting each other with a reciprocal view that good knowledge, and right knowledge is the best kind of knowledge that we make a social impact to draw our communities closer and closer to those connections to sea countries that everyone belongs. And and know there where I put my efforts in. I got very lucky in being able to look at establishing a market for cultural fisheries because I happen to have the right people at the right time. Still with those ideas of telling me, Emma, you're too ambitious. Emma, that's not the way her work ever. You know, uh, you've got to think about a million other things before you leap right in, and then to watch them. Those, and I, you know, have to be honest. Old white men, massive knowledge, science, just sit there for a moment and just say, why am I thinking this? And so we can debate everything, but it comes from a perspective of never saying, no, you're wrong, but from perspective of saying. How do we make this work? And that dialogue is the most satisfying dialogue I'll ever have in my entire life around expanding out
0: <laughs> Stick with us for part three as we hear more from Emma about tackling systemic barriers to increase empowerment for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So Emma, you've chosen to work in an area that as an Aboriginal woman can be isolating in many ways and um, I experience that quite often at work and um, I personally get motivated by knowing that I have my ancestors behind me and feeling their energy and so I was just wondering, um, do you feel energy from your ancestors supporting you in the work that you do?
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Dear sister, oh, I think for me, fisheries right here, right now, is the fact that there's a couple of our elders, you know, who have been fighting for fishery rights here in Tasmania for more than 25 years. And these are the giants alive today whose shoulders I stand on just to see that a little bit further. Nothing that I'm doing is original. Not one thing out of this, because fisheries and sea is who we are as island people. I mean, Aboriginal people in Tasmania, we are the southernmost, oldest, isolated population in the world. And so, it's a strange thing, isn't it, dear sister, where we talk about that loneliness yeah. of work, that she... The debilitating loneliness. That doesn't matter even if those other mobs are genuine and they are genuine in learning. It's the feeling of knowing that no matter how much we can teach, there's this thing inside of us as Indigenous peoples that belongs to us. Mm. And it's an everyday struggle it that will never yeah. in our lifetimes be solved. And yeah. so, particularly as women, fishery science. Yeah. <laughs> while we may not have realised at the time, we signed up to be the loneliest people on earth. <laughs> it
0: does feel like it.
1: <laughs> oh no! And yet, here we are, based in this country, the, you know, the oldest, isolated. And yet that sense of community. But what people will never realise, is how much of a cultural load we carry mm. in with us into that room because they don't look at just us, it's not just Mibu, it's not just Emma giving these opinion. This is the indigenous opinion. Yeah. <laughs> the, <Yep>. the burden <laughs> <turn It> is. <laughs> of trying to, you know, represent 65, 100,000 years of indigenous culture from every group in Australia. Yeah, it's really it's intimidating. Really <laughs> weary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we do it. But we do. This is a thing, maybe. So I can stand here and joke about the impossibility of it. But it's not impossible because we do it every day. We do it by turning up. We do it by saying that the ancestors influenced me, that the elders have done this work in the modern era. Every day. And so. Strangely enough, physically, we are the most alone people sitting in that room, and yet we have more connections than any of them because we bring our ancestors, because we bring those thousands of years with us because we might be we might be beaten down in that room by that argument, but we will never be beaten down by what our ancestors give to us. Mm. And so that's why we come back. Next day and the next and the one after that to just keep saying the same message because that's what we have that's our strength that's our cultural underpin oh, those ancestors dancing singing with joy for every every little shift of positive right that we have I know this <laughs>
2: I love listening to both of you, and it just sounds phenomenal, to be honest. And I admire the showing up every day, but I also admire the way that you're able to draw on that energy. But with International Women's Day, Emma or Mibu, I wonder if do you have advice for our listeners who are predominantly probably not underrepresented people, and there are probably many of them are in science, some of them aren't, Um, but what would you say that they could do to... Challenge the system to rally for systemic change to tackle inequities or inequalities facing Aboriginal and First Nation communities. It's a big ask.
1: <laughs> for, for me, it's that mutual respect. Got to have respect. To me, for like our allies, just to listen. Please listen, sir. And, and, and then, when you're listening, before you say, Well, no, that's not right, think about it. Why am I saying, No, that's not right? Am I missing something here? Because I know this person isn't crazy standing in front of me. You know, they're a PhD in this business, right? And, and just think about that system that has taught people not indigenous peoples, but other peoples, that your knowledge is the only one that's wrong. Because uh, once you get to know it, and so maybe we'll be able to tell us a bit more about that, but once you get to know it, we're the friendliest, most generous, loving people. We'll give you everything you need to succeed.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really true. The generosity that comes from communities and individuals in, in this area is just phenomenal. And um, it yeah, it comes from people who are constantly fighting those systemic barriers, and it's, it's it just confuses me <laughs> that that happens. Yes. But yeah,
1: yeah, how can these beautiful, beautiful Indigenous people who are excluded and trust. Oh, just put down on every level then come in and say, "Here, my darling, have this knowledge." Yeah, you know? I have this one. Here, take this one. Exactly. You go, you go, do well. And then look into that you've got nothing to give and yet you're still given. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it, I think and it highlights the differences in the, the, the systems, the cultural differences. Yeah.
2: Mm. I absolutely love okay. that advice of starting at a place of mutual respect and listening first. And then, you know, if you hear something that challenges what you know, reflect on why it challenges what you know. I think that that's really important advice that you've given Emma. It's something that uh, I'm certainly going to take forward and keep keep trying to just listen more. And I always think every conversation should start with mutual respect and it's something we can improve in science as a whole. Um, so thanks very much, Mabu, for all the work you've done for today's episode and for linking me up with Emma. I've really been inspired listening to both of you. Um, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it too. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, our International Women's Day special and our 100th episode. So thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or get in touch with us wherever you're engaging on social media, searching that Science Taz or That's What I Call Science. My name's Neve Chapman and I'd like to thank again my co-host Mibu Fisher and our expert guest, Dr. Emma Lee. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.